Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. In 2005, I went on a, uh, I was going to say mission trip, but I went on a surf trip to Mexico. <laughs> and um, I was with a bunch of college buddies, and we headed down to a campsite in Mexico. And on our way, we stopped at this one spot called K58. And uh, what the deal is you kind of pull up on top of this hill, cliff, and you can look down to the, uh, the surf. And when we pulled our car up, we saw that there was a huge south swell coming in, and we knew that was coming that weekend, and the waves looked amazing. From the distance, it looked like they were probably about a head high set, so like six, six foot waves. The conditions were amazing. There's offshore winds, so the, the winds were peeling back the waves, and they were creating a barrel, so that's a surfer's dream. And on top of that, there was nobody out surfing the perfect conditions at K58. And so we, we suited up, and we headed down um, the hill to go to the beach where we stretched out, and then we were checking out the surf from that location. It was, we were much closer, and we still saw the waves. They were so far out, it was going to be a long paddle. If you've ever surfed K58, it's a long paddle. Um, but the waves looked amazing. I was the first one out. I started, uh, started to uh, head out to surf. And I was a swimmer in high school, so I was much faster than my friends. And I paddled through the whitewash. And it took forever. As I was swimming um, out towards the break, uh, it was clear that the waves were bigger than I anticipated. The conditions, the current was taking us to the rocks off to the right. Um, the waves were getting bigger and bigger. The whitewash uh, that I was duck diving, were, they were, it was getting harder to get under the waves. I was getting knocked over when I was duck diving, and I paddled as fast as I could. It probably took 20 minutes for us to get out there so that we could catch the waves and be past the break. And by the time I got out there, my shoulders were already tired. I was already exhausted from the swim. I looked at my friends. They were on their way out, um, and the waves were much bigger than I, I did anticipate. They were about double overhead, so like 12-foot waves. I've never, I didn't at that time, and I haven't since, surfed in those types of conditions. Um, I was a decent surfer back then. I'm... I'm I'm less decent now. And, um, and, uh, and what I realized in that situation was that the conditions were kind of the scariest conditions I've ever been in. Um, and as soon as I got out there past the break, a set came in. And as my friends paddled in, I thought, I'm just going to go after the first wave. I'm going to catch the first one. I'm going to be the first. I'm, I'm very competitive, if you don't know. Um, hence the fantasy football reference. Uh, but anyway, so I, there I was. I paddled for the first wave, and I was just gunning it. I was already exhausted. I was paddling, 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 trying to catch the wave, and I couldn't catch it. Um, and my friends were past me at this point. I tried to catch the wave. I couldn't get it. And so I turned my board around. And the next thing I know, I see massive set, double overhead, about to break right in front of me. And so I turned around. I started paddling for dear life. I was absolutely terrified and trying to duck dive under the wave, but I couldn't get there in time. So as soon as I started to duck dive, the wave crashed right on top of me. It sucked me under. Um, and I began to spiral out of control. It ripped my board from my hands. My leash snapped in half. And I was being tossed around like a doll in a washing machine. And that's a helpful image, in case you didn't know. Just think <laughs> of a doll in the dryer. Just That was me. Um, and I came up after what felt like minutes. And it was just only a few moments. And, um, and I looked around, like, trying to find my board. I couldn't find my board. And then I finally turned around. There was another wave. It crashed right on top of me. It took me under again. This time, I didn't have time to take a deep breath. 
and I began to panic. I was terrified. I thought I was going to die. I was, literally thought I was going to drown. I didn't know from up, from down. I just, at, after I was pushed under the water for a while, I just kind of sat there and tried to float. Eventually came to. I saw my board off in the distance towards the rocks, about to hit the rocks, terrified, but terrified that I was going to die. I tried to go under the water as the next set came, and it was the third wave, and I was completely rocked. At this point, I just had no energy whatsoever. I thought, I'm done. Um, I was screaming for help for my friends, and then I finally came to. There was no more waves, so I paddled for dear life back to the shore. Exhausted on that long um, swim back, I ended up on the shore, picked up my board, completely defeated, exhausted from that experience. But in a short moment, something changed in me. In that quick experience, which which lasted only a few moments, um, something changed inside of me. From that experience, I became completely terrified to surf. I, um, for the rest of the trip, we were to surf every day for the next three days. Uh, I made every excuse to go out and surf. And not only that, when I did go out, uh, reluctantly, I was so scared of waves coming and crashing in on me, I, I paddled as far as I could so I could never actually be surprised by the next set coming in. And something inside of me um, was, was ruined by that one experience. That one experience left, left a lasting impact on my ability to enjoy surfing. You could say that my experience at K58 distorted my view of surfing. What was once a source of pleasure and joy became a source of fear and anxiety. K58 distorted my view of surfing. Now, eventually, I would rediscover my joy. Years would go by, and I'd have to challenge my fear and challenge the experience that I had in 2005 on that surf trip. That, that experience distorted my view of surfing. Uh, Alex and I, when we started dating, all right, a little insight into uh, this beautiful marriage of ours, uh, one of the most consistent arguments we would get into resulted from us trying to answer this question, where do you want to go to eat? <laughs> and if you are, uh, are, are in these consistent arguments, especially after church, know that it's straight from the devil. No, it's not. Um, <laughs> It took me years to identify the reason for this conflict. You see, early into our relationship, I had this one experience that I carried into the rest of our relationship. And this one experience went like this. Um, Alex, I asked Alex, where do you want to go to eat? And she said, I don't care, you choose. And so like any poor college student, I went to Chipotle, which nothing has changed in my life since, um, because that is still my answer to every time I want to eat. And so I decided to go to Chipotle. We stood in line. We get to the front, and I order my burrito, and she doesn't order anything. And and in that moment, I'm frustrated. I I check out, and we take our food to go, and we go back to her apartment, and she probably grabbed a snack or something, but she didn't really eat. And I, I, I carried that Experience. So what happened in that moment, I realized, is that I interpreted that event in a very dysfunctional way. I took that experience as though I did something wrong. That um, I, I carried this inaccurate view of what actually happened, and I carried that into the future. I thought I missed the cues she was giving me. That I took her saying, hey, I don't care, you choose, not as what she really meant. Um, what I, I, I translated it to mean, I actually do care. I'm not going to tell you. Your job is to figure it out. That's your mission. (laughs) So I chose to live in that false reality. 
Anytime I would ask for her opinion on something, I would spend the next 10 minutes, if she said she didn't have an opinion, trying to feel out, trying to throw out out all sorts of options to get a glimpse on perhaps maybe just a slight preference. And after 10 minutes of throwing out all these ideas, trying to feel whether or not she actually did have an opinion, we, we would both be exhausted and we'd end up not going anywhere and we'd fight and we'd argue. My distorted view of what took place at Chipotle was carried into our relationship and into our marriage for years. It impacted the way we communicated. And I really believed she didn't mean she didn't care. I really believed that she had an opinion. And she was, and, and because of my own brokenness, that I was afraid to be wrong, afraid to disappoint other people, because I didn't want to be responsible or held responsible for her being unhappy, it resulted in all sorts of unnecessary conflict in our relationship. And anyone that knows my wife knows that she, she does have an opinion. And if she says she doesn't have an opinion, she really doesn't have an opinion. And what happened back then was she wasn't hungry and she didn't order anything. It's, that's, that's true. That's what actually happened. I had to convince myself this years ago and years of therapy. No, no therapy was involved. <laughs> But we do this all the time, don't we, in relationships? We carry our brokenness, our pain, our past experiences, our expectations, our unspoken expectations, our misinterpretations, our, our distorted views about someone or someone else. We carry all sorts of those experiences into our current relationship, and it creates all sorts of dysfunction. Nothing is more harmful than carrying your distorted views of self or others into a relationship because it impacts everything else. And we do this all the time with our relationship with God. Many of us carry our pain, our past experiences, our broken relationships from our parents, our heartbreak, our loss, our anger, our resentment, uh, our misunderstanding, and our dysfunctional views into our relationship with God. And it creates all sorts of unnecessary conflict in our life. One study revealed um, that there are four views that Americans have towards God. Two sociologists from Baylor University discovered these are the primary views of pe- that people hold about God. Here they are. First, first is the authoritarian God. The authoritarian God is 31% of what Americans think. They think that God is an angry judge. He's deeply involved in your daily life, and he will punish you for your unfaithfulness and your ungodliness. He's like... Um, He's a God who will bless you when you do well and do good things, and he's a God who will punish you when you do wrong things. The second view is the benevolent God. 23% of Americans see God as a benevolent God. He's, he's involved in your daily life, but he's mostly a positive force of energy and good. So he's the prosperity God. He just wants to bless your dreams, bless the American dream, bless what you're doing. He's kind of there on the shelf making sure that everything's going well. Um, the third view is the critical God. I like to call this God the absentee landlord. And he's not interacting in the world. He doesn't per se have, have, uh, have much going on into, into your daily life. But he's watching from a distance, and he's unhappy with the current state of the world. And one day, he's going to bring judgment and he's going to judge you for all the things that you did wrong. It's like the absentee landlord. It's when you put the picture over the door that crashed through the wall. And he's going to come and see, oh, no, you messed it up here. You, you threw some baby wipes down the toilet. You clogged our pipes here. And that's the God that one day you're going to give an account, but he's not really interested in your life now. 
And then the other view they had, um, 24% of us carry the God, a God who is distant, the distant God. God does not interact with the world. God is uninterested in all things. He created the natural laws, the law, put everything into motion. He's like cosmic force, but he's not paying attention to any of us anyways. These are the views that Americans have about God. And so many of us have misconceptions of Jesus and God due to our inaccurate theology, poor biblical exegesis, our cultural perspectives, our personal misconceptions, as well as our experiences within a local church throughout our lifetime. Some of these traditions have created such a damaging image of Jesus, and we don't understand why we carry our views of God around. When shows like Preachers of L.A. come out and say that the only gospel is the prosperity gospel, people are going to be confused about what God is like. Because the scriptures say um, that God became flesh, lived as a poor, homeless, wandering rabbi who who died on the cross and was cursed by all human standards. How can that God promise you wealth and prosperity and lots and lots of stuff? That doesn't make sense. What kind of gospel is that? if you look at the scriptures. So we're all confused. Many of us are confused about what Jesus is really like. Some of you have experienced this growing up in high school, playing football, thinking that you're going to have a terrible football game because you, you sinned during the week. Thinking that God's holding out on you having a great life because you have to get your life in order and you're just a sinner and he's disappointed with you. We carry these images and views of God that are really dysfunctional and unhelpful. In leading the church the last six years, I've had lots of conversations with lots of different people and I've discovered a couple of things. The number one thing I hear about the garden when I talk to people is they make a comment like this, I never knew that about Jesus. They grew up in the church and they come here and they say, I didn't know this about God. Whether they experience it from teaching or community or or serving on mission or, or some class that we've taught, they've discovered something about Jesus that they didn't hear and know. And so we're starting a new series today and it's called The Real Jesus. And I want to spend some time teaching our church about the real Jesus. I, uh, I want to talk about the Jesus who is present and living. The Jesus who lived in human history, who died on the cross, who was condemned and murdered in human history and has been raised from the dead and continues to live. I want to talk about his real message, his real mission. I want to talk about his life and how, it, how his life teaches us how to actually live. Um, I want to talk about the real Jesus in the scriptures because the Jesus revealed in the New Testament is truly amazing. And the Jesus that I want to talk to you about is, is not just interested in saving you from eternal damnation, He's interested in in, in healing you of your addictions, in transforming your harmful behaviors. He's interested in in, in your marriages flourishing, in your kids having a vibrant life with him. He wants to empower you to live and risk and dream. He wants to set you free so that you could run in a wide open space. He wants to empower and expand your life, not diminish it to a set of rules. He wants to, the Jesus in the scripture is far more gracious than you could ever imagine. He's far more inclusive and far more forgiving and far more kind than the church has led on to believe. 
I want to talk about the real Jesus for a while. And, and, and I haven't structured this, this series out, but it's going to take a couple of months. I know that. But I want to talk about the real Jesus. And I want every one of you to meet him and know him and live your life around him. The Jesus that's revealed in the scriptures. N.T. Wright says this. He says, if you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what it means to be human, look at Jesus. If you want to know what love is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what grief is, look at Jesus. And go on looking until you are no longer a spectator, but you're actually a part of the story which has him at the central, as the central character. Jesus is better. Jesus is far better than you can ever imagine. And for some reason, we carry these dysfunctional views about him, about God. And for some reason, the church doesn't look a lot like Jesus did. For some reason, we carry these distorted views of what Jesus is like, but Jesus came to heal our distorted views of God because he's the revelation of God. And he reveals God in such a beautiful way that it will truly transform your life if you give your life to him, the real Jesus. If you quit making Jesus in your own image and allow him to be who he really is, he will create a beautiful story for you. You see, I, I think what uh, psychologists have discovered and what has been taught through philosophy throughout the years is that there is a hunger in every human heart. We are all longing for something. And there are three psychologists in the 20th century that identified what that longing was, what that, that human truth is. They said, Sigmund Freud said, people are hungry for love. Carl Jung said, people are hungry for security. And Alfred Adler said, people are hungry for significance. And Jesus says in John, I am the bread of life. I am the only thing that satisfies your human hunger, your human longing. Is there anyone here that's hungry for security, that's desiring significance, that's longing for love? Anyone here that wants to find meaning and purpose in life? Jesus is the only one that will fill that hole and void and satisfy that longing because he is the one that satisfies. Jesus is the one that will satisfy the insatiable desire for something more because he is more. Over the next several months, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about Jesus. We're going to look at how his life shapes the way we live, how his life should shape the Christian faith, not just theological belief statements, not just tradition, not our cultural perspectives, not just the church, but Jesus himself, the living God, should shape how we live this Christian movement out. Are you with me? Okay, are you with me? Even if this doesn't interest you, it really interests me. And I'm here to please myself. And so, like K58, in order for me to discover joy and pleasure in surfing again, I had to challenge, for me, one experience that ruined surfing. For some of you, you've had an experience that has ruined your view of God. 
We heard a testimony from Joe that his family left the church because the church um, basically excommunicated his brother who came out gay. And they thought, well, well, we're not going to be a part of a community that's going to kick him out. We're going to be with our family. Some of you have had those experiences. You thought you haven't been welcomed in church. You've been rejected in the church. Some of you have had personal experiences of suffering and fear and, and sickness that have shaped your theology and your view of God, that you're just waiting for him to, to, throw, to write, write up a ticket again, write you up a ticket. You're just waiting for the suffering to come. Some of you really believe that you're just blessed to be blessed and blessed. And so it's all about money and your dreams and God just kind of on the side, just stamping his approval on everything you do. And you haven't reoriented your life around the Jesus of the scriptures. And so for some of us, we have to set aside these inaccurate views, these past experiences, these strong convictions that aren't biblically based in order for us to experience this living God. For some of you, it might be the spirit. You recognize that you've grown up in the church and this whole spirit thing, when we call people forward, it weirds you out and you never get any experiences of your own. It might be just opening the box that you've put God in and allowing him to speak to you for yourself. But this journey together is about discovering who Jesus really is and learning to live our lives around him. Are you with me? So I'm going to close with this. We started late, um, and I really I wanted to, to teach through a very familiar text. So I'm going to do this rather quickly because I want us to actually pray for one another. Um, but I thought, why not start with this text? Because the last five weeks, I've talked about vision, how we are going to do what we're going to do as a church, accomplishing the next five years and planting lots of churches, baptizing thousands of believers, raising up leaders to go into all the parts of society and domains to transform those places. And I thought, with all this amazing adventure in front of us, why not talk about the text that will probably get us there faster than anything else? Are you with me? This is the text, Matthew chapter 11. If you have a Bible, go there. If you have a phone, scroll there. If you're lazy, look at the screen. Yeah, says our worship pastor. (laughs) Thanks, Pete. Any of those options are fine, okay? I'm not going to condemn any of you. Cheers for all of you that are turning pages. Uh, Matthew 11, verse 28. Jesus says this. Some of you, um, as I start to share this, you're going to know it's for you. I just want you to close your eyes. Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's read that one more time. I'm going to read this over you. So you know what? Why don't, why don't we all close our eyes? The word of God is powerful. It has the capacity to transform our lives. Let's open ourselves to his word now. Come to me. Jesus is speaking to you. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I thought, what a perfect passage to begin this adventure on. Is this the kind of Jesus that you know? I want to make a couple of observations about this text, okay? And what this means for our life. First of all, point number one, life with Jesus is an invitation, not a command. 
It's a very simple observation. Jesus is inviting you to live with him. He's inviting you to live as he leads you. And he's inviting you to become more fully yourself. That's what discipleship is. As you become more like Jesus and do the things Jesus did, you become more fully human and you become more fully yourself. That's what Jesus comes to do. To empower you with all your personality, with all your uniqueness, with your strengths and your weaknesses. He comes to expand your life, not to diminish it. And as your life becomes and shape, uh, as your life gets shaped by the character of Jesus, you become more fully you in this process. But it's not a command; it's an invitation to come and learn from Him. He wants to teach you how to live. Jesus is the model for life today. I believe Jesus can teach you how to parent. I believe he can teach you how to be a good wife or husband. I believe he can teach you how to live as a business owner, as a sales rep, as a teacher. I believe he can teach you how to be unemployed well and hopefully get employed and do that well. He can teach you how to thrive in suffering, dealing with grief, dealing with, dealing with trials and chaos. Jesus is our model, but to follow him is first an invitation. It's not a command. It's an invitation to experience the life with him. You are invited to see him, to be with him, and to be with him, uh, to be with him and to follow him on a journey of transformation. It's not going to happen overnight. Second observation, life with Jesus is for everyone and anyone as they are right now. As you walk into this place, as you hear the invitation, the call to be with Jesus, you don't have to clean your life up to be with him. My wife does this all the time. We get a cleaning lady like once every few months, okay? When it's unbearable and our house is messed, we're like, we save up money and we get a cleaning person to come in and they're absolutely amazing. But my wife stresses me out. You know what she does? She says we have to clean up before the cleaning ladies get there. And it's so true. It's so, she's like, we're going to make our bed because I don't like the way she makes the bed. I'm like, come on, let's just have her do it. <laughs> Some of us feel when we come to Jesus, we have to, we have to put on our best dress. We have to get ready for him. And Jesus, no, 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 no. Come just as you are with all the drenching sin in your life, this saturated, disgusting mud that has become the addictions of your life. Say, he just says, come like that. Just come like that. And then he goes on, he says, those who are, are weary and burdened. Jesus says you can come with your failures, your disappointment, your sin, your past, your junk, your misconceptions. And those who are exhausted from the labor, those that are tired of trying so dang hard, those that have been exhausted from the struggle, weary means to lose heart. Those of you that have lost heart, that anything good can come out of you, that any change in your life is possible, that your marriage could actually have hope again, that it looks dead. Jesus says that weary marriage will become alive again. Come in your weariness, he says. He says those who are burdened, those who are carrying a heavy load. Is there anyone here that is stressed and anxious and exhausted and tired from all their labor, whether it's in work and life, just trying to keep up? Anyone here feeling like that there's an endless amount of work to be done in your life? Can we just be honest? Yeah. He says, come, come, come. 
take my yoke upon you. The word yoke has to do with submission and being bonded to him. But it's a, a term that they use for animals. They'd have oxen. They would put two equally yoked oxen. Um, and they would, there was this, this wooden strap basically that went over them. And it was used for service and plowing the fields. Um, but it was used as an Old Testament reference for the law. The 613 commands was the yoke of God on his people. And rabbis used the phrase yoke to describe their teaching. And they would want to spread their yoke around the world through discipleship. It had to do with their way of approaching life, their spiritual insight, their truths about the Torah and the scripture. The Pharisees were the dominant kind of religious sect of Judaism at the time of Jesus. They were the most popular groups, uh, a popular group of, of Judaism at the time of Jesus. And they added 1,500 laws on top of the 613 laws found in the Old Testament to Life with God. They said in order to be obedient to God, you had to follow the 2013 laws. And Jesus said that the Pharisees put a heavy burden on the common folk. They, didn't, they, didn't, they couldn't live out what it means to be holy, what it means to spread God's yoke. They couldn't possibly do it by the religion. And he challenges it. And Jesus says, no, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And his yoke is described as light. I love it. So Jesus doesn't expect less from his followers. It's just a different way of doing life. It's one that's empowered by the Spirit, and it's light. And he invites anyone that's experiencing pain in this life, exhaustion, anyone that's weary, anyone that's tired and burdened, anyone that's feeling like there's no way they can keep going, he says, no, 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 come to me, and let me relieve that load from you. Let me take that burden off of you, and let me show you how to really live. That's what Jesus comes to do. Third observation, just two more and we'll close. Follow, following Jesus leads to rest. Following Jesus leads to rest. So I want to ask you, who are you following in this life if you're exhausted? Who are you following in this life if you are weary and more burdened today from following Jesus? It says that you have rest for your souls. The center of your, center of your existence will have well-being, security, and peace. That's the translation. The word rest is connected to the Hebrew word Sabbath, which means to cease. And it's an Old Testament tradition and law that on the seventh day, every single week, the Jewish community was to stop from work, to cease work, and to rest on a day to remind them that they are not what they produce, but they are who God says they are, that they're made in the image of God, and they have a purpose to reveal God to the world, and they need a day every single week to stop doing the dishes, making, running errands, working, answering emails, doing yard work. They needed to rest, enjoy, have leisure and pleasure, pray and experience the creation that God created because they are made in the image of God. Rest for your souls is what Jesus comes to bring you. Do you know this Jesus? Have you experienced this Jesus? Fourth point I want to make about this one text, that following Jesus is light and easy. Following Jesus is easy and light. He says, learn from me. His character is humble and gentle. When you think about God and your life, do you see him as gentle in your life? When Jesus comes to speak to you, do you, do you hear a gentle voice, a humble voice, or an angry voice, a disappointed voice, a frustrated voice? Easy is translated to good, and light is translated to pleasant. So, so to follow Jesus is good and pleasant. And again, I ask you, for those of us that are tired and stressed and exhausted and overwhelmed, those of us that suffer from busyness, 
Do you know this Jesus who is good and pleasant? Is your life moving towards joy, peace, contentment, and freedom and rest, or striving, exhaustion, burnout, and disappointment? And I guess for me, this is a sweet spot because if any of you are like me, then the Jesus that you're following or the answer to that question is your life becoming more, full, more joy-filled and peaceful. The answer is no. That's not what my life looks like. The Jesus that I served for far too long was a Jesus that I had to please with more and more stuff. I had to give him more time, more energy. He wasn't happy with me unless I was giving him reading more scripture, if I wasn't doing more sacrifice, if I wasn't giving more money, if I wasn't serving the homeless, if I didn't invite people into my life. I wasn't going to be a good and faithful servant unless I gave everything I possibly could. And in ministry, I became burnt out. I became exhausted. I became sick. I forced my wife to to do things because it was ministry when it wasn't actually what Jesus was asking us to do, working 80 hours, all because I thought this is the Jesus that was, was, uh, this is the Jesus, this is what Jesus wanted from me. I was burnt out because I thought that's what Jesus wants. He wants that kind of sacrifice. He died on the cross. I can die by answering all these emails and making everyone happy. And ministry, which is designed to be a place of joy and pleasure, became a source of fear, anxiety, and burnout. And it was just like K58 for me. I had to recognize that there was an experience in my life that that was distorted. And I had a distorted view of Jesus. I was worshiping the wrong Jesus. The Jesus of the scriptures promises abundant life for you and joy, one of rest, one of peace, one of wholeness. And if you aren't there yet like me, but you want to follow him that that direction, then that's what we're going to do over the next season. Because he's inviting you to rest. He's inviting you to experience his love and joy. Yes, we're going to go to the nations. We're going to move mountains. We're going to see thousands baptized in new believers. But we're going to do that through his power not on our own flesh. Amen? So, I know you guys are anxious to leave. But I definitely have a word for you this morning. I'm not going to apologize for this one. In kids' ministry, we have some great volunteers. How do you experience this life with Jesus? Dallas Willard said this, the key to living as a disciple today What is most needed than ever before for those that are following Jesus is to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Nothing more. How do we ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives? I mean, I cram in so much in in an hour period, it's exhausting. And if anyone's like that, um, I have good news for you. Here are some thoughts. Number one, I want our church to practice Sabbath every single week. We'll talk about this in a few weeks. I want you to practice Sabbath. I want you to decide on a day. It doesn't have to be Saturday. It could be any day where you will not work. Will you prepare your house in advance? You want to work around the house. You won't do dishes if that's a job for you. That's an exhausting job for me that I do every day, twice a day sometimes. Um, (laughs) But you will prepare to rest and create a rhythm every week to find your identity being reunited with the creator and creation that you are good enough just as you are. You do not have to produce more. Amen. You want to hear more about Sabbath? Because I can talk about it next week, potentially, or in two weeks. Um, Bill's next week. Okay, anyways, the second, this is my only other advice. Create margin in your life. Create margin. 
So how do you create margin? I want to invite you to eliminate distractions that fill your, your life, your mind, your, your, your day-to-day life with nothing emptiness. For me, I, I gave up social media for the next month. I'm confessing that, so if you see me post anything, I've sinned. Um, <laughs> but I realized, like, it just, I love, and there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with social media. We've talked about this. But for some of us, it's just this constant checking in. We don't actually have space to just be. For some of us, it's scheduling meetings, not back-to-back, but creating margin within the day, so 15 minutes between meetings or 20 minutes. It's not listening to music or radio, talk radio. It's literally creating margin. There's a study shown. I love this study. This proves my point about reading comprehension. Check this out. Reading fast without understanding the information isn't much use to users. Would you agree? So the goal is to understand and comprehend what you're reading. And so there was a study that was done, and a research study found that reading text with margins that were increased, increased comprehension than that of no margin. So if you have text that just overlines and just fills the page, you will not only read slower, but you won't comprehend what you're reading. You need margin on the page to understand the words. Brothers and sisters, if you want to experience rest and joy and fulfillment, if you want to be an obedient follower of Jesus, ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life and create margin so that you can experience the thing that God's trying to do in your life. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.